0: I have the privilege today to introduce to you a special speaker, not just for this morning, but somebody who's had a big impact on my life, Scott Stubbert and his wife Christine are up from California, apparently that's what we're doing this week, we're letting the Californians in, Uh, and God loves you guys too, Um, and so Scott was the youth pastor way back, 15 years ago, when I was in the youth group, back when I was loud and obnoxious, uh, when I'd walk in here with shorts and t-shirt on a Sunday morning, uh, how things have not changed, I guess, right? Um, and Scott and Christine have both had a huge impact in my life. Uh, I believe it was 2001 to 2003. Uh, they were here somewhere, 2000, 2003, in that range. Um, and then Scott, since then, has gone back to California, and they've they're, they have four kids now. They left with one. Now they've multiplied and uh, have four children now. Silas, who was two when he left here, is now 14. 14 years old, and uh, so it's been incredible just to have them back this weekend. We've been hanging out, playing games, laughing, catching up. Uh, It's been a beautiful time, and Scott is now the pastor of, of, uh, one of the pastors of Celebrate Recovery down in Modesto, a church of over 3,000 people, and so Scott has been, um, and and as you know, we've been started to Celebrate Recovery about a month ago, and so when this was all in the works, I called Scott and said, hey man, would you come, would you share with us your own personal testimony, Uh, and and, and then just to preach to the word from us, and, and he was more than delighted to come and uh, to share with us. And so uh, I'll tell you what, you know, we, we, Heather had come to me, talked about wanting to start this thing, and uh, I, I knew, I had heard that Scott was a pastor of Celebrate Recovery. I called, I Facebooked him out of the blue, and one of the thing, first things he told me is he goes, man, Christine and I have been praying for the last six years that a Celebrate Recovery would be started in Soldotna, Alaska, I mean, you talk about goosebumpy thing. God is in control, man. He is doing stuff. And to think about them on their knees for our church for six years, praying that specifically, and then to Facebook him out of the blue and say, hey, we're thinking about starting to celebrate recovery. Uh, God is good. And so would you please, with me, give a warm Peninsula Grace welcome to Scott Stubbert. Oh, oh man. It is good to
1: know that things don't change around here that much. That's awesome. So I love uh, Justin, and I uh, love being up here, and let me introduce myself like I do at my meetings, and my name is Scott, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm in recovery from sexual addiction and compulsive overeating, and that's when you say, hi, Scott, hi, Scott. and that's just how it works like that. So um, now when you go to Celebrate Recovery, you'll know how to introduce yourself, you'll know how, well, don't say the pornography and compulsive overeating, you have your own stuff, but um, you can introduce yourself, all that kind of stuff. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll continue our time. Today, Lord, thank you so much just for this opportunity to stand here and uh, uh, to just be here on a Sunday morning. What an amazing day that you have given us, that we have an opportunity to listen to your word. And uh, Lord, will you use me this morning to be able to share how you transform my life? And uh, may it be about you, may it not be about me. And uh, may this just be a great, great morning. Thank you, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I'm a big movie guy. I love movies. I love hanging out and watching TV and stuff like that. That's, uh, I'm not a big outdoors guy. I don't know why, so it was a little rough. But um, it's hot in California, and anytime I get hot, I struggle. But anyhow, here's the deal is um, I remember these great movie moments that happened. And when I was thinking about coming up here and talking and what would I share, the reality was is in my life, there were times, more times than not, that I wasn't me. That I decided that I was no longer Scott and I had to present and perform for you and present something that wasn't truly who I was. And there was a moment in time where I had to decide, was I going to be that person or was I going to be me? And that process of going from being The person that I thought everybody else wanted me to be, to be in me, was a very hard time in my life. And so I have a video I want you guys just to pay attention to and uh, may be able to illustrate some of these things. So the point is, we all put on masks. Every single one of us at different times in our life have put on a mask. And sometimes that mask is something that's needed because you're in a marriage that's rough and you're having a tough time and you just had a fight and you got to go to a family event and guess what nobody needs to always know you're junk and so sometimes those masks are needed but the problem is how do we live without that mask because the more we put that mask on the more it becomes part of us and the more in bondage we are to becoming fake and becoming unreal and God desires for us to be real and to be authentic and to be able to be exposed and known to other people. I believe thats the desire of our heart is to be fully known by others. I was reading in um, a book titled uh, "True Faced," and it says this. I never experience the love of others because when I wear the mask, only the mask receives the love. Not myself. See, why do we put on that mask? Why do we take that mask and choose to put it on? Well, let me tell you my story. And I believe through my story, you may be able to relate to some of these things. But the the reason why I chose to put on my mask one of the main reasons was because of the hurt and pain that I felt. Because of the hurt and pain of my life. And there was a point in time in my life where I was going to school just like all of us do. And it was first grade. And my teacher goes, you know what? This is at a Christian school. She goes, she put me in the back of the classroom. And she told my mom that I was stupid. And I couldn't understand what was going on in the classroom. She put me in the back of the classroom and said, because you can't read, you're stupid. In second grade, I realized that I had a nice teacher that year. And she said, maybe we need to go get his eyes checked. And it was found out that I had dyslexia. And back then, we didn't really know how to handle the dyslexia stuff. And so we didn't understand it all. So I spent a lot of time at the eye doctor because they thought it was an eye issue. I spent a lot of time doing things that really didn't help me at all. I spent a lot of time at a tutor's house down the street, staring out the window and seeing all my friends in the street playing football and and baseball and all these things that kids do, riding their bikes, as I sat there hour after hour studying things and not being able to comprehend it, not being able to understand it, because I just struggled. I felt different. I felt weird. I didn't feel worthy enough because I was stupid, because... I was unlovable. And I remember moments in my life where that continually came up. There was moments in my life that that was only reinforced. Like when I was nine years old. And I can remember it was a day after day occurrence where my mom had struggled with depression so bad that it was like a nervous breakdown. She literally could not pull herself out of bed. She could not get up and take care of her children. And I remember standing in the doorway, looking into the room. I can smell it. I can smell the smell of those days of just being closed in. And going, why can't my mom get up and take care of me? Why is my brother now being a parent to me? I didn't have a mom to get me up and and get me ready for school. My brother got me up and got me ready. My brother made my lunch. My dad would come home from work and he would be the one that would do all the things and my mom would still be there. She'd either be in bed or she'd be on the couch or she'd be in bed or she'd be on the couch. And for some reason, I could not figure out why my mom didn't love me. And here's the thing. It must have been because I wasn't worthy enough. So maybe if I do something good enough, she'll love me. Well, that didn't work. Because I'm already unworthy. I'm already dumb. I can't read. I can't do these other things. Well, then maybe if I act out enough. I got more spanks in my family than I can remember. Because maybe that negative attention will give me at least some attention. But it drove me to a place where I did not know how to handle it. As an unintended result, no one, not even the people we love, ever get to see our true faces if we decide that we're going to wear that mask. And I became very good at wearing that mask. I became very good. And the problem is, is when I decided to put that mask on back then, the person that my wife fell in love with was the mask. So what happens when I decide to take that down? She doesn't know who she really fell in love with. It's not the same person. So there's a process of healing that must happen. But not only does hurt drive me to put on my mask, but now there's so much pain, there's so much stuff that's there that I must seek comfort. I must seek comfort. And at nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, what do you do? Well, that's when you're developing as a young man, and so there's all these things going on with your body. And so I decided that I would start to look at pornography. And it started with the newspaper ads that would come on Sunday morning, and we would, I would go out and I would sneak out and I would grab those ads and I would hide them. I would hide them in my room, and then when my mom and dad were asleep at night, I would then take time to look at them. I would take time, and I had my stash, and I had this stuff, and this is what I would do. When my parents were sleeping, and I was finally alone, this is what I would do. To comfort, to nurture, because guess what? These things would never reject me. Those images would never turn me down. Those images would give me my fix, so to speak. And then there was a day in junior high where my mom and dad actually decided to help me clean my room because my room was a mess. And I remember them pulling out the bottom drawer of my dresser and they found my stash. And as my mom's jaw drops, my heart dropped the same. I had been found out. My mom and dad talked to me. They told me, hey, this is inappropriate. This is ungodly. We had that big long lecture that after three minutes any teenager tunes out. We had that talk. I thought the conversation was just going to be between us. Mom, dad, this is just us, right? Yes. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in a counselor's office. They told somebody else. Next thing I know... He's dumping out my stash in front of me. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. And I knew I had to only put that mask on better. I had to hide my stuff better. See, Ezra chapter 9, verse 6 says this Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher then our heads and our guilt is mounted up to the heavens. The guilt and the shame that I felt, I could not let anybody else in. So I had to only do one thing, and that was to wear my mask. So I hid it better. I found new places to hide my stash. Places my parents wouldn't look. And then in, in high school, it, it came to a new Level in high school, went over to a friend's house, and he's like, hey, check this thing out in my dad's garage. I'm like, okay, and I'm just a naive dude, and all of a sudden he shows me this calendar, and I rebuked him like any good Christian would. Hey, this is wrong, this is sinful. We shouldn't be looking at this stuff. And I walked out of that garage, I got in my car, and I drove right around the corner to our mini where I bought my first magazine. And my addiction took a whole new level. And then as you continue to do that, my, my, my struggle and my battle To find freedom and to find victory victory from that. Continued to be a vicious cycle. Then if I wasn't looking at that, then my decisions were to eat food. Because food brings me great comfort. There's nothing like going to that Moose's Loose and getting that apple fritter and going, oh yeah. (laughs) Jesse brought some... uh, cupcakes to this party last night and I'm just telling you there was a moment that I was like whoa if I'm not careful I will derail and I will just go bonkers over this stuff they were amazing food was a great comfort to me I would manipulate and lie and my parents would go buy pizza for us and here's the thing is I would actually lie and say oh I hate pepperoni I really don't like that because that's what everyone else in the family ate but I love Hawaiian pizza that way I could get my own pizza. That was before my dad realized that you could split it, you know what I mean? So he, they would have eat, three of them would be eating their pizza, and then I'd have my whole pizza to myself. There was times in my life that my dad did have, not know how to help me. And I remember being home on a Friday night as a junior hire, and my dad coming home and going, hey, I got this box of donuts for you. Oh, is this for everybody? No, this is just for you. And there was those, those powdered white donuts that are 50. They're like that big. And I would sit there and just mow through those bad boys as I was watching TV with my parents and drinking a big all tall glass of milk. And there was those moments where, guess what? That brought me great comfort. That fed my need to be accepted. Minus the few occasions where you eat something a little bit too hot and you're like, hmm. That food never rejected me. And never turned me away. It was always there to help me. And then as you become a youth pastor, you eat pizza on a regular basis. That is a steady diet of your choosing. But here's the thing. As I put that mask on, as I wore that mask, and I would put it on because of the hurt, and I would put it on because of the comfort, there was also a part that was about performance. There was a part that I had to start to perform. If I'm unlovable... And I'm never good enough. Well, maybe I can try something else. And that will make me worthy enough to be loved and accepted. And guess what? I excelled at football. At football, I was great. In high school, our team was phenomenal. I, it was crazy. My senior year... We were the number two rated defense in all of California. We only allowed 525 yards total the whole year. Phenomenal. The last three games of my senior year, I was defense player of the game. I averaged, I think it was 13 sacks a year. There was this part of me that was amazing. And then I stepped foot on the college campus for the first time. And guess what? No one gave a rip about what I did in football. All those awards I got, all those those things, the patches on my letterman's jacket, didn't mean a thing. The banner hanging up in our gym didn't mean a thing. Well, maybe if I get good at religion, maybe if I become a pastor, then I'll be worthy enough. No. Maybe if I'm funny enough, maybe if I can make enough people laugh, then I'll be worthy enough. No. See, Psalms chapter 20 verse 7 says this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I put my trust in chariots and in horses, and I did not put my trust in God. Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 says this. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Whew. I know I relate to a few of those stinking things. And I hate it. But here's the reality. In our lives, we have this hurt. We have this comfort we seek. And we have this performance that only allows us to continue to hide behind our mask. And when I tried to take the mask on my, off myself, I only failed. I only failed. But how do we take off this mask that we've put on? How do we take that off? See, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We are called as believers in Jesus Christ to walk in the light and to take that mask off. When I tried to do it on my own, this is what I found. I found rejection When my mask was ripped off of my face by my parents that day and I tried to be honest and authentic at that moment, guess what? I was only rejected by my parents. My trust was broken. In the church, I had many times that I had confessed my sin at church camp going up to humiliate Christian camps and up there being able to confess my sin and guess what? They handed me a Bible verse and they said, go and sin no more. As good as that was, What do you mean go and sin no more? I don't know how to do that. I've tried to stop and I can't stop. Well, maybe you got to pray more. Okay, I've done that. Maybe you need to read more. Maybe you need to memorize more. Maybe you need to do this more. It was all for me about religion and performance and it didn't work because it was all head knowledge and it wasn't heart knowledge. The church had let me down. And I don't know if you've ever had that moment in your life where the church has let you down, but it is a hopeless feeling when you feel that rejection from the leaders that are around you. There was a time I actually was being discipled by a guy and we drove up to Knight's Ferry, which is, you guys don't know where that is, but it's about a half hour, 45 minutes away. And we were coming back and I finally built up the confidence and the nerves to tell him. And I told him and he dropped me off at my house and he never talk to me again. I'll see him at parties these days, and guess what? We'll do the cordial, hi, how are you? And past that, there's nothing. I was abandoned. I was rejected. Rejection was what I found when I did it by myself. But then there was a moment There was a moment when I left this church and I went back to California and this was my time of a wilderness for me. It was my rock bottom. I had tried forever to stop looking at pornography and I had not found victory. And I found a moment when I got back and I remember these words that the elders said as I was leaving. They said, Scott, we hope that wherever you go you're going to get help. And at the time, I was angry, and I was ticked, and I was like, how dare you say that to me? And I walked into Big Valley, and there was a ministry getting started called Celibate Recovery. Well, I had memorized every verse about sexual addiction. I had memorized everything that I could. I had prayed. I was done. But here's the thing. I walked into those doors for the first time just to get my wife off my back, just to put that mask on a little bit longer, and here's the deal: When I walked into that door that first time, and I sat down, I showed up late because I didn't want anybody to recognize me. Right? Nobody wants to be recognized. When they, and I sat down, and all of a sudden, the dude in front of me turned around. And dang it, I knew him.
2: No, <laughs>
1: <laughs> didn't work. He didn't get up. He didn't go. What are you doing here? What's your addi- what's your addiction? He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, "Man, glad you're here." We broke off from that large group time. We went to this, what, what we call an open share group time. And here's what happened. As is, is I sat down in this room, and we're around this table, and there's about 20 guys sitting there. And they're all going around the room, and they're saying why they're there, and they're starting to talk. It was my turn. Are we really doing this? Are we really going to do this? Are we really taking down our mask and sharing our junk? Because I had only been met with hurt and pain and abandonment. Everyone else was a chemical addict. They were all drugs, alcohol, and I was all alone. And here's what I shared. Hi, my name is Scott. I'm in recovery for sexual addiction. And here's what they said. Hi, Scott. Nobody got up and left the room. They listened to what I had to say. And it was for the first time as I was taking that mask off. I started to cry in that room with those 20 men. What in the world is going on? We don't cry. That's why I keep my mask up, right? Because if I have that mask up, I don't have to feel. I started to cry. I started to share my hurts and my pains. And God, at that moment, showed me that I was accepted and I was loved. Whoa. That was amazing. And then afterwards, they, I got invited to this thing that they call a step study. And I sat in this, at, I was working at Lowe's at the time. So I was stocking shelves at night. So I went from being a youth pastor to making half that amount of money to provide for my family. Stocking shelves at night at a warehouse with a bunch of people that were driving forklifts and popping pain pills. And I was like, what are you doing in my life? But there was a step study that was at 6 a.m. in the morning. So I'd get off from working all night and I'd go to this meeting and I'd sit around and we'd start going through this step. And we started to talk about denial. We started to talk about powerlessness. We started to talk about the fact that I'm not God. And the reality is every time that I chose to look at porn, eat food, make a decision, instead of rely and surrender to God, I was actually becoming God. And I really didn't trust in him, did I? And so there was a moment where I had to start to trust in him. And I started to make a fearless and moralist inventory. That's writing down all my sins. That's pretty darn scary, because I did a lot of them. And then share that with another person. Everything. But it was in those moments that great healing and acceptance happened in my life. And I no longer had to put on that mask. And I'd love to tell you that that mask came off with ease, but it didn't. See, I needed the help of God, and I needed the help of those brothers in that room to come around me and to help me. And to call me on my stuff. And to say, hey, Scott, you're putting that mask back on. You're not living in the light, as First John would say. So how do we live our life without the mask? How do we live this life without putting that mask off on? And how do we live in the light that God calls us to live in? It's this room in true faith that he would refer to as this room of trust. Living and trusting God. That the fact that I will not be rejected for who I am. That I can be me fully, and I will not be rejected. And if it is, it's not about me. It's tough to be exposed and to be let everybody know what's going on. My pride gets in the way as I stand up here and as I share my stuff, going, oh, I wonder what they think. And I've had to come to a place where I don't care. I had to come to a place where I have to be me. See, the toughest part for me was that fifth step. It was actually sitting down across from a guy in Starbucks saying, this is what I did. See, because I didn't want anybody else to know what I had done. All the sin I've ever committed. And I sat there in Starbucks and it took a while for me to go through my list, about two hours, and we sat there and we talked. And I just sat there and I I read off my list. See, I thought he was going to reject me. I thought once he he knew really the bad sin that I've done, he would walk away from me. But he didn't. He accepted me. He listened to me. And when I got done, we stood up. And he hugged me right there in the middle of Starbucks. Awkward. But we're in California, so not too many people (laughs) stared. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not submit again to those moments of putting that mask back on, to walking in the shadows and the darkness, but commit To being in the light and being in Christ. That's what God calls us to do. That fifth step was extremely, extremely difficult for me. Not only to admit to somebody else, but to actually admit to myself and to see on paper all the things I'd ever done. Oh, I'm really not that good, am I? No. And then to confess those things to God was huge. The amazing things started to happen in my life. All of a sudden, I started to build resilience in my life. And instead of feeling unlovable and unworthy, I started to feel worthy. Because Christ has made me worthy. Christ has made me good. Christ had formed me in my mother's womb. And when I was birthed, I came out with a purpose. And when I put on a mask, I am unable to find that purpose. But God calls me and he says, you're worthy. Your needs are going to be met. And your greatest need is not sex. Your greatest need is intimacy and fellowship with others. And that's what we get in the church, hopefully. That's what I get at Celebrate Recovery. Because I got guys that are being honest and being open. And we laugh and we joke because on Sunday mornings there's a group I run. And we're sitting in our office building going over some deep, intimate stuff that are pretty gnarly. And he's all, do you, there's a guy that goes, do you realize that people are singing worship songs over there and we're talking about this over here? And all of this is giving God glory? I'm going, dude, that's amazing. That these are the things that we can do. My favorite part of this is that 12th step. And I know you're not familiar with those things. But that 12th step says this, that we would be able to go and that we would be able to, uh, let me find it here, give back. See, there's a phrase that we say in recovery, you can't keep it unless you give it away. And so all of a sudden, I started to do announcements at Celebrate Recovery. All of a sudden, they asked me to lead the, the teenagers. I'm like, no, wait, wait, wait. Are you serious? They wanted me to lead the teenagers? And all of a sudden, I started leading teenagers, giving them a safe place to talk about the fact their parents are getting a divorce, the fact that they're they're doing drugs, the fact that they're, they're having sex with their girlfriend, the fact that this is going on and providing a safe place and not freak out and go, oh! But to have a place that they could talk about that. All of a sudden, I'm getting asked to be a pastor, and all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of 500 people on a Tuesday night going, I'm a sex addict. And let me tell you about my stuff. The fact that I get flown up here to Alaska to tell you guys about my life, about what God's done, and the small things that I get to do. Sponsor guys. Help guys along their own journey. Helping others that are stuck in a life of sin. My church has blessed me by sending me away to even get trained so I can be a certified sex addiction therapist, counselor, pastor. And that is one of the most amazing things that I could ever imagine. Do you know who I am? Do you really know how sick my mind is? And you want me to do what? And I sit in my office, and I do Celebrate recovery two days a week, and I do counseling the other two days a week, and I have the best job in the world. I'm sorry that you guys don't, but this is the best job in the world. The fact that I get to help people that are broken and that are at a point in their life that they can't do it on their own anymore, and whether they like it or not, their mask is off. And I get a chance to come alongside them and help them figure out how to live their life without that mask. Along this journey, there's a lot of people for me to thank. I thank, first of all, my wife, who didn't reject me, who didn't kick me out, who didn't say, you're a loser, but said, hey, I'm hurt, and I'm angry, but I don't want to tell her story. I'm actually going to invite her up right now, and she's going to tell you a little bit about her journey.
2: journey's been just a little bit different but you know the mask is still the same and for me I've realized that in Genesis it says that God made us in his image and I think the moment that sin entered the world is when we put on that mask you know Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin and I think we all try to and I know I tried to cover my sin and also I would try to cover my hurt I didn't want people to know that I was hurt by them so for me the masked looked more acceptable to the world, and in fact, in many ways, um, it was praised. I was responsible, and I made the good choices, and I was involved in church, and I did all the right things, and so this was great. You're a leader. How amazing, but really, it was just a mess because I was afraid that people wouldn't like me, so if I could kind of be God's, you know, I don't know, front person here, then it was God. They were rejecting. And uh, so unfortunately, I could become critical and I'd be real quick to say, you shouldn't do that. God wouldn't want you to do that. And so then if they didn't like me, it was really I would say, well, they just don't know God. And that was a mask I would put up because it kept me from thinking I wasn't good enough. And um, also I would try to control and fix and keep people happy because I needed my circumstances and things around me to be good so that I could feel at peace, and so, you know, controlling looks fine on the outside. You're organized. You're responsible. You turn things in, and all, you know, you get, in fact, people want you on their team because you're the one who's going to make all the details happen, but it became a problem because I couldn't handle when things weren't good, so I know even when I was little, if my mom or something was upset, even if it wasn't me who had done anything, I would apologize thinking, well, I just need to make her happy because if she's happy, then the rest of us can be happy and then I can feel good. So all of that was keeping me from realizing my own value and from living that abundant life that God promises us. And I couldn't grasp that. I didn't understand what that looks like. um, When I finally came to Celebrate Recovery, um, because I was going to help Scott, and I was going to support him, and I was going to be the best recovery person out there because if you're going to do something, you're going to do it (laughs) well. And um, I had to realize that my controlling and my fixing was me wanting to be God and that I didn't trust God. I wanted my plan, and I would say, but look, my plan is biblical. I want God's stuff, but it wasn't God's plan that I was trusting. I was trusting my own ability to fix things. And so I really believe that, you know, God allowed me and had me walk through the storm. And he didn't stop the storm because he loved me so much that it wasn't enough to just let me have this mediocre life. And he wanted all of me. He wanted more than just my good actions. He wanted my heart. And he wanted me to um, truly know what it means to love him and trust him and to need him. And I had never needed him. And so I think he allowed, you know, this crisis in my marriage because I, I didn't know what to do. I, I had bought all the books. I had passed all the books on to Scott. I was controlling all the money. And yet life was still out of control. So I've had to learn that I have to take off that mask and go, God, it's it's your life. It's not my life. And it's okay that I'm not perfect. It's okay that I don't make all the right choices. And I can't fix Scott. And it's okay. It's not my job to fix Scott. And if Scott messes up, that's Scott. That's not me. And so I've had to learn that this idea of trusting him is a discipline that I have to practice day by day and sometimes moment by moment. I don't have to trust Scott. God has grown us in that area, and our trust is far beyond where it's ever been. But I don't know that I'm called to trust him 100%. But I do trust that God will carry me through whatever circumstances come along. And so through that, I think I've been able to go, okay, I can have an abundant life. I can be at peace because I trust God and because he's going to take care of me and because he loves me. He knows me and he loves me and I don't have to be perfect and I don't have to have the perfect life for me to feel okay. So now I can base my peace on him and not on people around me. So, you know, day by day, I ask myself, what am I not trusting God with? And God's worked a miracle in Scott and mine's life, but now I have children. And, you know, on my phone, my picture is my kids. And I put the words that says, what do I not trust God with? Because now I got to stop controlling my children's life. And I have to realize that if what I want is for my kids to love God, the way to that may not look like I want it to look. But do I trust God with my kids? So daily I have to take off that mask. I have to tell people what am I struggling with. I have to share, you know, the good and the bad. I have to confess my sins. I have to have people that I trust that I can be real with. And um, through all of this, I can say that it is well with my soul, and that God does work, sorry. And we're just so thankful to get to come up here and share, and just God has done so much in my life, and he works in my husband's life, and so, you know, my encouragement is just, you know, celebrate recovery, or this idea of a mask is not just for those with addictions you know, this is for all of us because we all experience hurt. We all experience pain. And we all make bad choices in order to cover up that pain. So I work this day by day. The mask goes on. I have to take it off. And so I just continue to practice this in my life and to remind myself that it's not, um, I have to trust God and let him have it and surrender it to him allows me to love Scott fully because it's not about me and whether he's rejecting me and it allows me to love other people fully as well because I'm not worried about me. I'm just loving people. Um, so, anyways, thank you for letting me share. Awesome.
1: To wrap up, what I want to say is I just want to encourage you if you're sitting there and you're thinking about celebrate recovery you're even contemplating hey maybe i'll check this ministry out let me just tell you you need to show up you just need to be there you need to make the commitment now to be there you need to find a way to go how do i serve because the question well what my experience is this that if you don't make a commitment to be there life will happen Sports will come up, something will happen, you'll feel tired, there'll be a good show on, something will come up that will keep you from going. So you make a commitment to be there. You call Justin and you say, Justin, what can I do to be there? What can, what do you need? What, how can I serve? I'll, I'll clean up all the coffee, I'll do whatever. If You've never been to a recovery meeting, man, coffee's important and sugar goes everywhere because they're doing this and, and, and it just, it's awesome. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's great to watch. But give it at least six weeks. Give it six weeks of showing up and being there and serving, whether that's leading worship, whether that's hanging out, whether that's just being a greeter, whether whether you're the person that's just to pick up chairs or to do whatever. Find something to do. Something to help out with. Make that commitment. Be here next Wednesday. Be here and be part of the program and start to watch how God will help you because you can't keep it unless you give it away. Thank you for letting me share with you guys today.